0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 302, King Edred. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Nigel, Anna, and James for signing up already. All right, where were we? With all this focus on culture, it's been a little bit since we last talked about the political situation in Britain. So let's remind ourselves of where things were politically when we left off. Well, King Athelstan had died, and he died childless, which possibly was the result of an agreement that he had with the West Saxon nobility, who had opposed his ascension to the throne. And while Athelstan's childlessness had avoided a potential civil war and provided a clear line of succession... It also robbed the House of Wessex of political power. You see, Athelstan was practically an emperor. He was pretty much all-powerful. But the massive royal clan that he had been born into had been steadily disappearing. Until finally, at the end of his life, that line had dwindled to simply Athelstan, Edmund, and Edred. And sure, he did have some extended family members that were descendants of his great uncle, King Athelred. But as for brothers and male first cousins, well, now there was just three. And that left the line of succession clear, but it also meant it was sparse. And then Athelstan died, which reduced the primary branch of the House of Wessex to only Edmund, who would now reign as king, and his brother Edred. This powerful dynasty, which had been so numerous only a few generations earlier, had dramatically shrunk. And it had done so at almost exactly the same time in which it had expanded its borders dramatically and wanted to rule over a huge portion of land. That dichotomy was not an ideal situation. And it's no surprise that Olaf Guthrifsen and Olaf Sitriksson saw an opportunity in this. And upon Edmund taking the throne, they capitalized on his weakness and seized Jorvik and the five boroughs. Now, King Edmund did fix the issues of his early reign. At home, he worked to expand his house, fathering two sons with his wife, Ilf Gifu of Shaftesbury, And in the field, he worked to recover the lands that had been lost. He reclaimed the five boroughs, reconquered Northumbria, and followed up on his successes by marching into Strathclyde and ravaging it. After deposing the king, Edmund then handed Strathclyde over to King Malcolm of Scotland, making an ally in the process. Specifically, he got Malcolm to agree to come to England's aid when he called. And Edmund might have made that deal because he was considering war with France. See, the trouble was that King Edmund's nephew and foster brother, King Louis IV, was imprisoned by Hugh the Great. And that didn't sit well with Edmund. So while he was working on rebuilding his kingdom, he was also trying to intercede in French politics on Louis's behalf. But there's a problem with that. You see, people tended to have a habit of dying unexpectedly whenever they got in Hugh's way. And true to form, while King Edmund was feasting at Pucklechurch, someone came along and stabbed the king to death. Which I'm sure Hugh thought was just terrible luck. But that should get you caught up to where we left off with King Edmund bleeding out on the floor of the feasting hall. And that left England with three potential heirs to the freshly vacated throne. There were King Edmund's two sons, they were named Edwig and Edgar, and then there was King Edmund's brother, Edred. Now, you might imagine that the kingdom would automatically go to the eldest of Edmund's sons. After all, that's how primogeniture works. But the reality was a lot more complicated than that. First... Of the eight successions since King Athelwolf, only three of them were from father to son. The other five were from brother to brother. So if anything, fraternal succession was the norm in the House of Wessex. You also had the issue that Edmund's sons were still very young. Like far too young to rule. And that was a big deal. Wessex had a long history of preferring older, more established rulers. And that was a tradition that went all the way back to when rulers were selected by the Witanicamot. And even though Wessex was now just a province of England, the fact remains that the West Saxon culture was dominant among the ruling classes of England. And speaking of that culture, you might recall how Alfred and his brothers had been splitting Wessex between them. And then later, Edward and Athelflad had split greater Wessex. And in all those circumstances, you'd have one ruling above the other. And that was a practice that was born out of a cultural desire and a political need for experienced leaders. You see, power sharing and having a young Athling rule over a small subsection of the larger kingdom was an effective way to groom heirs for rule. And the House of Wessex had been doing it for quite some time. So if Edmund had been following that tradition, it's possible that he delegated Mercia or some other region to Edred and let his younger brother earn his spurs. It wouldn't be the first nor the last time that a king from the House of Wessex would grant a prominent position of power to a brother. And politically, it would be quite clever because it would allow the local nobility a chance to get used to Edred and get a sense of whether or not they wanted to follow him. And there were other pieces in place for Edred's inheritance. Chief among them was the Dowager Queen Edgifu. She was the widow of King Edward and the mother to King Edmund and Edred. And politically... She had a lot of pull in the English court, not to mention that she was also a wealthy landowner in her own right, holding significant estates in Kent. And her choice appears to have been quite clear. She wanted Edred to rule. And whether it was in response to her influence, or the age of Edmund's sons, or the culture of fraternal succession, whatever it was, the nobility fell in line, and Edred, brother of Edmund, was proclaimed king. And in this context, this chain of events seems fairly normal. But there are some hints that Edred's coronation and the power brokering involved might have been a little fishy. First, you have Ed Gifu's role in this. And I'm fairly certain that Ed Gifu played a heavy role in this succession for one simple reason. After this event, we see her appearing in court. And not just as an attendee. Aid Gifu was seen as being second in power only to King Edred himself, which means that she was even more powerful than a king's thane, or even a staller. And we all know how powerful they are. And that wasn't just rumor. We will later see her take direct action in political machinations of her own. So Edred's rise might have been a bit of a power play by his mum. Second, it's interesting to note that the Northumbrians and the five boroughs did nothing in response to Edred's taking of the crown. There was no rebellion. There were no invitations being sent to tall, bearded, blonde guys from overseas. They didn't do any of the things that they typically did in this circumstance. Instead, Edred was proclaimed king, and the usually rowdy Anglo-Danes of Northumbria just went right back to, I don't know, eating Ludafisk. So why did that happen? Lastly. King Edmund died while he was working to secure the freedom of his nephew and foster brother, King Louis IV of France. And King Louis was Edred's nephew and foster brother as well, so you'd think that he'd take an interest. But whereas Athelstan and Edmund had both worked hard to defend and support Louis's claim on France, Edred showed absolutely no interest. He completely dropped the matter. And almost at the same time, Hugh the Great released Louis from prison. Though, Hugh the Great stripped him of a bunch of his lands and power, rendering Louis basically a king in name only. So the timing of all this, the murder, the sudden dovish stance towards France, and the strange silence in Northumbria are all kind of odd, especially when taken together. I don't know what to make of it. It's just strange. But in King Edward's defense... French politics seemed pretty dangerous, and there were plenty of reasons to just not get involved. Like, for example, a desire to live beyond 35. And as for his mother's influence at court? Well, given the fact that he had so few family supporters at court, Edred might have welcomed his mother's heavy hand. Because the fact of the matter is that Edred inherited quite a few problems that were already taking up a lot of his time. The first problem was his stomach. Records indicate that Edred suffered from a significant and chronic illness of the gut. And as a grandson of Alfred, we can likely surmise that poor Edred had inherited Crohn's disease, or at least one of the many similar related illnesses. And the thing about autoimmune disorders is that they're difficult to treat even in the 21st century. And King Edred was not in the 21st century. He was living at a time where it was difficult to survive the flu. So life for King Edred was uncomfortable and probably really exhausting. Because let me tell you, there are few things as exhausting as a gastrointestinal bleed. So that's problem number one. Problem number two was also inherited, only this time it wasn't genetic. It was religious. As you might remember, English monasteries had a long and storied history of being a place where rich families could store their spare sons. And these religious houses ran quite differently than how you might imagine a medieval monastery worked. The monks owned their own property, including land. The monks weren't required to take a vow of chastity. There weren't religiously based dietary prohibitions. And of course, there was a ridiculous amount of alcohol apportioned to each monk every day. Like, a ridiculous amount. Entirely too much alcohol. Every single day. And the situation in the English church had become so extreme that we have records of ecclesiastical figures complaining about the drunken orgies that were taking place at these institutions. English monasteries for large parts of the Middle Ages were in practice little more than frat houses for the island's rich kids. It was like a 300-year-long Coachella. And this fact was getting on the last nerve of some of the more pious members of the clergy. So a group of reformists buoyed by a new awareness of monastic life on the continent, was beginning to form. And at the head of the group was an extended member of the royal family. His name was Dunstan. Now, Dunstan wanted the English church to start looking like continental benedictine monasteries. And that would mean that English monks would have to give up their worldly possessions. They'd have to stop having sex. And they'd also have to stop eating meat. But they could still drink. But as you might imagine, this proposal wasn't exactly all that enticing to many of the monks. No sex, no meat, and you can't even live deliciously. At that point, why even bother being a monk? And that's where Dunstan's reforms might have stalled out, were it not for a bit of luck. You see, years earlier, King Edmund had gone hunting. This was before he was King Edmund, though. He was just Eddie or Edmund. And on that hunting trip, things went bad. And Edmund thought he was going to die. So he did what many people have done in those circumstances. He tried to make friends with the Almighty. And I'm sure it was the typical, Oh, shit! if you let me survive this, I will be so good. You'll see. I promise. But whatever the promise he made was, he survived the incident. And fast forward to Athelstan dying and Edmund taking the throne. Well... All of a sudden, Edmund decided to make good on his deal, and he appointed Dunstan as the head of the abbey at Glastonbury. So now he had the leader of a Benedictine reformist movement that was heading up a major abbey in England, and as a consequence, the fraternity culture of the Anglo-Saxon church was put on notice, which meant that a lot of rich families were hearing complaints from their rich kids about how shitty their summer camp had become, and how it was kind of all the fault of the House of Wessex. And that was a problem. It was a problem for Edmund. And now that Edred was on the throne, it was a problem for him too. Because his survival on the throne required maintaining the support of his dynasty, who supported Dunstan, while also keeping the other noble families happy. And the thing about autoimmune disorders is that they're often triggered by stress. And sure enough, the record that discusses all of this mess also includes discussions of Edred's stomach pains and it gets worse. Dunstan, it turns out, was charismatic, and despite his absolutely miserable pitch, he actually began to gain some traction on his no-sex, no-meat, no-fancy-things crusade. And pretty soon, a highborn monk named Athelwald slipped off his boat shoes, traded in his salmon-colored chubbies for a robe, and depledged from Kappa Beta Athelbrad. And the thing about converts is that they're always the most zealous believers. And true to form, Athelwald was all in on this new piety thing that Dunstan was talking about. In fact, Athelwald made Dunstan look like party time Barbie. He was utterly ruthless in his pursuit of reform. But he wasn't all powerful. And as a mere monk at Glastonbury, there was only so much he could do. And meanwhile, his fellow monks were still throwing a 24-7 kegger. It was demoralizing. And it bothered him so much that he decided he was going to move to the continent. But the dowager queen at Gifu caught wind of this. And in a demonstration of her power, she convinced King Edred to intervene. Edred did as his mother asked. And to placate the angered monk, the king granted Athelwald the abbey at Abingdon. And he allowed him to staff it with other similarly disgruntled reformist monks from Glastonbury so now we have two benedictine reformers heading up major english religious institutions and one of which was seen as an extremist even in his day and that extremist also had unparalleled access to the future of the crown because athelwald was allowed to educate Edred's nephew the young prince edgar son of king edmund fire and brimstone was now fully facing off with animal house which meant that the english church a pillar of economic and political power in its own right, was at risk of devolving into an ecclesiastical civil war. And King Edred was caught in the middle. But hey, at least Northumbria was stable. Though, as far as Northumbria was concerned, the best policy is trust but verify. So in 947, Edred made the journey to the border village of Tanshelf. And there he was to meet with Archbishop Wolfstan of York. And that actually must have been a difficult decision. I mean, first of all, traveling, like stress, is a common trigger for immune disorders, So I'm sure that this trip to Tanshelf wasn't something that he wanted to do. But more than that, there was the issue of who he was meeting with, Archbishop Wolfstan. Wolfstan had been appointed by Athelstan himself, but that didn't seem to make much of an impression upon him, nor did any of the oaths that he took. Because Wulfstan was the same archbishop who had broken his oaths and had joined Olaf in his war against England. And it actually wasn't all that long ago that Edred's brother, King Edmund, had to march to war against Wulfstan And the only reason why this man was still an archbishop was because Edmund had made peace with him. As far as the House of Wessex was concerned, Wulfstan was a dick. But Edmund needed Northumbria and this shifty archbishop had promised to bring him the fealty of the lords of Northumbria. So, off to Tanshelf he went. And this time, probably to Edred's surprise, Archbishop Woolstan was true to his word. He had brought all the northern nobility with him, and they did as he promised. There, at Tanshelf, they officially offered King Edred their fealty. And after presumably a celebratory feast, King Edred and his court put the matter to bed. And this was a major moment of development for the kingdom. The crown had changed hands, but the borders stayed the same. No one was rebelling. This was a good moment. And Edred was feeling so good, in fact, that he referred to himself in charters as Edred King, emperor of the Anglo-Saxons and Northumbrians, governor of the pagans, defender of the Britons. And with Northumbria dealt with... Maybe Edred, King, Emperor of the Anglo-Saxons and Northumbrians, Governor of the Pagans, Defender of the Britons, could take a break and let his body heal. Because it probably hurt. Well, funny story. Do you remember Hakon? He was one of Edred's foster brothers. He was the one who was sent to England by King Harald Fairhair of Norway. Well, as you might recall, eventually Hakon left Athelstan's court and returned to Norway. And there, he gathered support from nobles who had grown discontent with his half-brother's rule, and he led a rebellion in which he seized the throne of Norway and became King Hakon the Good. Well, Hakon's brother, a guy named Erik Bloodaxe, had survived that fight, and he took to the sea along with some of his supporters. And since then, he'd been doing what landless Scandinavian nobles often do. He was putting together a crew of morally flexible people—crews, actually and he was looking to make his fortune. But Eric didn't just want to go a Viking. He wanted a kingdom. And he knew exactly what kingdom he wanted. The first kingdom founded by legendary Halfdan, son of Ragnar Lothbrok and leader of the Great Army. Eric wanted Jorvik. And besides, the whole reason why he was landless in the first place was because of Hakon. And while Eric was a blood relative, that didn't seem to matter all that much to Hakon Adelsfoster. That turncoat had converted to the English Gods, and he fought against his own family. So Eric might as well get some payback against Hakon's new chosen family. So the sails were unfurled, and a course was set. A short time later, Eric and his army landed on the shores of Northumbria. And I'm sure that at this point shields were raised, and for good reason. These Englishmen had managed to defeat powerful kings like Olaf and Guthrith. Furthermore, Eric Bloodaxe didn't actually have a claim to Jorvik. He wasn't on the line of Ivor or Halfdan. He didn't have a claim through Guthrith or Ragnald. Eric was a deposed Norse king turned pirate. Technically, he didn't really have much of a right to be here, nor any right to the throne. And that meant he was gonna have to take this kingdom by conquest and Eric and his army needed to be ready for anything that these people were going to throw at them but he might not have been ready for precisely what the Lords of Jorvik and Archbishop Wolstan did throw at him they threw the crown of Jorvik it turns out that they really weren't all that excited to be serving an English king especially the brother of a man who had only recently ravaged their lands so The lords of Jorvik and Archbishop Wolfstan decided they'd take their chances with Eric Bloodaxe. I mean, at least he was Norse. And with that, the Kingdom of Jorvik was back. And far to the south, a messenger reached King Edred. And I'm sure that after a moment, Edred, King, Emperor of the Anglo-Saxons and Northumbrians, Governor of the Pagans, Defender of the Britons, winced and headed to the toilet. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit and Twitter and a whole bunch of other sites, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of com. Thanks for listening.